All right, let's go James chapter 1. If we could get the lights up, please. James chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, if you don't have one that you can call yours, I would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that, we say it every week, but the reason is very, very simple. All right? We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And so uh, if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then like pressing into the scriptures are the wisest way to live, I think. And so maybe God will bless it. And so if you don't have a Bible that you can call yours, take that one. Uh, if you want a prettier one, we also have a lost and found. Uh, some of them have like gold edging. It's very, very lovely. You'll have to scratch somebody else's name off, but it'll be great. All right. Um, so we kicked off a new thing last week. Uh, we kicked off a new thing last week. Uh, we're exploring the book of James together. We're, we're taking a slow walk through it, just kind of trying to pick it apart, suck all the marrow out of the bone if you want to go that route. Um, and, and I'm confident that, that God will uh, give us good things through his word if we, or, or as we commit ourselves to that. And, uh, and so if you weren't here last week, um, James is a letter written by James. Yeah, brilliant, right? Uh, just so creative in naming things in church history. Um, James is a letter written by James, uh, but there are a number of Jameses in the New Testament. So the obvious question is, okay, which James is it? All right, is it one of the disciples? Is it the half-brother of Jesus? Well, we're pretty certain that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. All right, um, uh, though through church history, uh, some have referred to him instead uh, by his nickname, James the Just, which as far as nickname, nicknames go, that's a pretty solid nickname. I, I, that was not my nickname in high school. I will never share with you my nickname in high school. Um, it's, not, it's not flattering. All right, so um, James the Just. Uh, so we had to cut ourselves kind of through a bunch of weeds last week uh, trying to deal with a bunch of debates uh, uh, in scholarly circles surrounding uh, things like authorship and the dating of the letter. And we spent most of our time talking about uh, the debate surrounding authorial intent, meaning what the letter is actually written to do, all right, the purpose of the letter. Um, and so we, we got through it, though. We're, we're standing up on the other side. We we have now made it to week two, all right? So we're done with that other stuff, right? Never more to be seen. You know I'm lying. Okay, so, all right. So we ultimately landed in a place that puts the book of James, we think, very early on in the timeline of the New Testament writings. Uh, some pin it down to the early to maybe mid-40s A.D., all right, so very early on compared to other New Testament writings. In fact, it's my, if that is the dating of James, it's the first thing written in the New Testament. All right, so very early on in the New Testament uh, writings. Um, so um, if you happen to be less familiar with the book of Acts, maybe you're new to the church thing, new to the Bible. Uh, Acts is the historical account of the early church. And there are a couple of major windows, vignettes, kind of that you can point to in the book of Acts. Kind of, it moves from one frame to the next frame to the next frame, periods of history uh, like that. Um, and so Jesus gave the command after he's risen from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven. He gives the command that his people are to be witnesses. Do you remember some of those places in Jerusalem, Judea? Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's a really awesome command. It's, not, it's hard not to get excited about that command. The problem is, maybe as much as two years later, they hadn't moved out of Jerusalem yet. They hadn't gone anywhere. They're still in the place where Jesus told them to go out from there into all the world. And so that's Acts chapters 1 through 6. If you didn't know, the first six chapters of Acts, they hadn't budged 
So is that obedience or disobedience? A lot of people say it's disobedience. There may be other extenuating circumstances, but a lot of people point to that and go, eh, maybe, maybe God needs to move them out of Jerusalem if they won't do it themselves. And then something happens in uh, chapter 7 and 8 that changes everything. A man named Stephen, a guy I'm supposedly named after, a man named Stephen gets himself in trouble, gets himself arrested, <laughs> very much like me, decides to give a speech, which makes the problem worse, and he's executed. The first Christian martyr. And there's a man, a Pharisee, standing there watching it all happen. His name's Saul of Tarsus. We know him better by his Latin name, Paul. He's watching all this play out, and he goes, man, that's a great idea. We need to ramp this up. It's time to take this from JV to varsity. Let's go, boys. And this is before Paul became a Christian. He thinks it's a really good idea to stamp out this rebellious Jewish sect that, that's going around teaching people that the Messiah already come. What, what, what are you going to do with that? Well, we've got to put an end to this. And so he takes it upon himself, uh, and persecution explodes in the early church. It just absolutely ramps up. In Acts chapter 8, the church scatters out from Jerusalem, fleeing from this persecution. And now, well, now they've got chaos on their hands, right? And not only do they need to learn how to kind of live through this, but they actually need to learn how to deal with that and continue flourishing in the middle of that. It's only a year or so after that moment that Jesus stops Paul in the middle of a road to Damascus and lets him know that, Paul, you're going to be on my team now. All right, that's how that conversation goes. You're switching teams. I'm, I'm claiming you. You, you. Pack your bags. You're coming with me. All right. Um, and Paul goes, okay. It's only a few years, a year or so after that moment that Paul is converted, we would say. But the ball that Paul got rolling in the persecution game, it didn't stop when Paul put it down. It continues to ramp up after that. Persecution continued to happen even after Paul changed his jersey. Uh, the Christians, they might have started out only being on the radar of the Jewish authorities, only being an issue that the Jewish authorities were trying to stamp out, but eventually it became something that was on the Romans' radar as well. And they needed to do something about it too, and they, they brought a little more force to the table. So back to James. We've got a pretty big window pretty big window to, to drop the book of James into, maybe about 10 years, but it's still early church. But whatever the case, we see James as a letter written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians who are facing very, very real trials and hardships. Their world is a mess right now. Their lives have been upended, turned upside down. They are far away from home. It's possible that they have lost property and possession and maybe even loved ones. It's not a fun day. It's a pretty dark time, actually. But at the same time, even while all of that is true and going on, the church is still growing in the middle of all this. It's, it seems paradoxical. They've been scattered, but they have not been undone. In fact, they, they actually seem to be flourishing under this pressure. Maybe, maybe there was something to that God needed to scatter them idea. And because 
they have been scattered but not undone, because things are continuing to move forward, because things are uh, still growing and progressing in spite of the trials and hardship, that means that the leaders who are responsible for this church, not only are they responsible for assessing public professions of faith, which is what church leaders in every age have to deal with and are responsible for, but they're also responsible for helping everyone, as they are scattering, continue to uh, kind of grow spiritually. Even as the church is spreading out from the, the hub, from the center in Jerusalem, they're still responsible for making everybody, as they're going away, making sure they're still growing. They've got more work to do than they ever have. Because here's an unfortunate reality about trials and hardships that's in the world. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this and figured this out for yourself. Um, Trials and hardships, they usually take the spiritualized camouflage that some people try to hide behind, and they rip it off. You ever notice that? They pull it back and reveal what people do and don't actually believe. Nothing, and, and I'm, pretty, I'm pretty convinced about this, absolutely nothing in this world clarifies what someone is actually putting their trust in, like the brokenness of this world ripping every other trust away. When you lose all the other things you cling to, you learn really quick what you, what you value the most, what you cling to the hardest. So not only does the early church face hardships, but because of this reality, they're also facing pretty sizable internal struggles as well. And these struggles, lead, they lead them into sin, it leads them into doubt, it leads them, some of them into walking away from the body of Christ, but man, James loves them dearly. He wants all kinds of good for them, so he writes them this letter, a letter addressed broadly to the scattering of saints scattered about as they're spreading out. He wants to kind of cast the net as wide as he can, and, and, and James writes this letter to address some problems that he is seeing, namely that there is a measurable difference between saying you believe something and living like you believe something. Those are not the same thing. They sometimes occupy the same space in a Venn diagram, but they're not the same thing. Yes, even especially during hard times. See, a major theme that we're going to see all throughout the letter of James is that authentic faith never exists in isolation. It never exists in isolation. It changes you. It affects you deeply, so deeply, uh, that the ex there are external proofs that change, there are external proofs that other people can't miss. It affects you so deeply that well, it leaves an impression on folks, we could say. It's not just seen by those who are paying attention. It's actually leaves an unmistakable impression on everyone who manages to stray into its orbit. James wants exactly that kind of deep and abiding faith in God's people. And, and by God's grace, man, this, this letter is, has been preserved for us to chase after the same things. And I'm thankful that God left us this. He, he could have just given it to the early church and it would have vanished away after that. God saw fit that we needed that kind of deep and abiding faith too. So we handled all the contextual issues last week. You ready to start digging into this thing? All right, let's look back at verse 1 again. We looked at one verse last week. We're looking at four today. You are welcome. This is James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. All right, so we didn't talk about this last week, but James calls himself something here that's absolutely important to point out. Uh, important for a couple of reasons, actually. Uh, one, he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Greek word there for servant ain't servant. It's the Greek word for slave, doulos. Calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. All right, so why does that matter? Well, it ought to tell us a couple things. First of all, this ought to tell us something incredible, absolutely incredible, about the testimony of James. I mean, think about his story for just a second. Now, we mentioned last week that the Gospels indicate that James struggled to follow Jesus early on, right? Uh, While Jesus was still alive, his family, they didn't really buy the whole Messiah act. They couldn't point to sin either, but they didn't buy the whole Messiah act. I mean, it's a little bit of a step too far to worship your brother, all right? It just, it just is. The resurrection has an effect on people. It changes your allegiances, and they, it moves people from doubt into worship. And so while the Gospels paint the picture that J- uh, Jesus' family, James specifically, struggled to follow Jesus, it is a very, very different story by the time you get to the book of Acts. I've got a little brother. He's a nice guy. It's his birthday today. I'll tell you how old he he is because that means you'll know how old I am. All right. You know what Matthew Woodard would absolutely struggle to to, just struggle with completely? Calling himself my slave. (laughs) In order to get that out of him, I'd have to sit on him. And if you're wondering, I could still do it. We could call him later. It'd be great. So James apparently has gone from doubting all the way to freely and joyfully calling himself a slave of Jesus. What has changed in this boy? It's because he understands that Jesus is genuinely who Jesus claims to be. He is worthy of nothing less than that kind of service and sacrifice and obedience. The resurrection proved that to him on every level. And so God has completely changed his heart on this issue. But there's a second thing that we can learn from James calling himself a slave. This ought to uh, tell us an awful lot about the tone of James's letter going forward. It ought to tell us all kinds of things about James, James's tone and posture throughout the rest of this letter. James carries authority. He is an apostle. He is a leader in the church. Everything he is about to say in the rest of this letter is the word of God. It doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. When James speaks, authority is buried in it through and through. James carries authority, but James is not swooping in here in some kind of grandiose way to assert that authority. He's not flexing authority here. He carries authority, but he lives under a greater authority. Authority that has been vested to him, and so he leverages his lesser authority for the good of others. Listen, maybe you come out of a church background where the quote-unquote leader was the kind of guy who needed to constantly throw their weight around, right? Nobody's ever seen that here, right? (laughs) Flex their authority all the time so that people listen and things get done. Strike a little holy fear into the flock so that they'll do what you need them to do. That's never happened in the history of the church. But that's not James. That's, That's not 
James. All throughout the scriptures, the apostles and the other identified church leaders that walk all the way down the list if you want to, they all make a steady habit of emptying themselves for the sake of others. That is the repeated practice. Just like Jesus, they go out of their way to serve rather than to be served. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. James is not going to shy away from the heavy stuff in this letter. He's not going to shy away from saying the hard things. The rest of this letter is not filled with a bunch of debatable, open-to-dialogue kind of stuff. That's not at all what's going on. No, James is unapologetically declaring the word of the Lord on these issues. And some of what God leads James to write, it has some teeth to it. And those are sharp teeth. But James's heart in this moment is directed towards the good of his audience, not anything that he might gain for himself. And so he calls himself a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single church leader following after James ought to carry the exact same kind of posture, period. There's no room for another model. Authority, yes, absolutely. And sometimes authority needs to bear teeth. It's true. But biblical authority, right? Biblical authority always is leveraged and a self-emptying service of others. Authority wielded in any other fashion just does not have biblical warrant. And so lock in James's tone here. We're going to spend a long time in this letter. Right? I don't want to come back to it every week. Lock in James's tone here. Stick around long enough as we walk through this letter. I promise you, you will eventually see some of James's teeth. It's coming. But it's not because James is seeking to harm Not at all. It's because he's seeking to serve you and I. There's a difference there. You ready to look at verse 2? It says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so one little paragraph, two sentences in three verses. Awesome. Okay, what do we do with that? Well, it has a bunch of words in it that we have to be very, very careful to define the way the Bible defines them, or else we're going to make a mess of this text real quick. All right, just... Just laying all, all the cards on the table there. Um, J- James wants to, to talk about meeting trials or facing trials, if you've got a different translation on your lap this morning. Uh, so what in the world is he talking about? What's a trial to James? Well, James is being written when we think it's being written. It's very obvious what he means. Persecution. He's talking about persecution. I mentioned Saul's persecution a few moments ago. Uh, let, me, let me show you real quick, how the book of Acts kind of describes it. So hold your finger in James, flip over to the book of Acts real quick. We're going to come back to James. Acts chapter 8. Show you just real briefly how the historical account of the early church frames what we think is going on here. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1. I'm going to start in the second half of the verse, the second paragraph there. It says, 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen. That's that guy that just you know, gave a speech and got killed for it. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He uh, dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That, that sounds like a fun day. I mean, I don't know about you, but anybody, anybody want to sign up for that one? <laughs> anybody, anybody here ready to get back to the glory days of the early church? Um, fast forward in the story, I'm not sure exactly how long it goes on. Um, it's not spelled out explicitly in the text here, but we eventually get to Acts chapter 9, the next chapter. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says this, But Saul still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right, let's go! So so listen, we're, we're not talking here about having certain privileges in the city taken away. And we're not talking about uh, being run out of town, even though that would be a terrible thing. We're not even talking about being merely thrown in jail for their faith. I think all those things could rightly and fairly be described as, defined as persecution. I think it's there. It's in the text. But Acts 9 tells us that murder was on the table. So apparently we're talking about something at a higher level here. Right? We're talking about persecution on a level that quite frankly, is foreign to every single one of us in this room. We have no idea. I said a moment ago that what started with Paul was quickly picked up by others. By the Jewish authorities, and then after that by the the Roman authorities themselves. And so no matter where in that big 10-year window that we want to drop James in, the writing of James, what we can safely assume is that persecution, quote-unquote, is a very, 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 very real thing for his audience. I don't think I added enough varies there. No one on the receiving end of this letter struggles to define the term. They've lived it. They are either currently living in it or they have just recently stopped living in it and can reasonably expect for it to ramp up again soon. They know what it is. They've seen it with their own eyes and it'll probably be Thursday. But James uses a specific Greek word here for trials. He uses the word pirasmos, which is a funny sounding word. In some translations, uh, English translations of the Bible, it's rendered, uh, rendered as the word uh, uh, temptation. Uh, if you've, uh, it's exactly how the King James Version handles it. And while I'm not an anti-King James guy, um, it's not my personality at all, I don't think that the KJV is actually helpful here. Um, I think it struggles here. Um, not, not because the translation is bad. Uh, temptation is actually a word that can and oftentimes ought to be used to translate the word parasmos. I, I, don't, think, I don't think it works, though, because our culture doesn't use the word temptation the way it used to 400 years ago. We have changed how we define the word 
And so it doesn't fit anymore. Um, normally, when we think of the word temptation, we think of some kind of temptation to sin, like uh, some invitation to, to draw us into a questionable thing. We think of some kind of enticement from some wicked party or maybe even our sinful own hearts to, uh, uh, to induce us, pull us, draw us toward some moral failure of some kind. We would call it sin, right? That's normally what's locked into our head, kind of built into our all-understood definition of temptation. An inducement towards moral failure, a wicked one even. But parasmos has nothing to do with morality. That's not what the word means. It has nothing to do with sin. Parasmos is all about examining something for a defect. Examining something for a defect. Like putting something under a stress test to see how it will do under pressure. Putting pressure on it and looking carefully to see if it fails. And so if by temptation we mean precisely, strictly mean an enticement towards failure, then yeah, yeah, that vocabulary works real well. But that's not what we all think. When we hear the word temptation, we hear something different. It's always loaded with extra layers that James does not mean. And so speaking of persecution, James uses a word that his audience would have had just immediately heard and put in the category of intentionally checking to see if something is valid. Intentionally checking to see if something is up to snuff. Which, if you're paying attention to the logic of this, immediately brings all kinds of awkward questions about the nature and purpose of persecution. Intentionally checking to see if something is valid? Persecution? According to James, follow this, according to James, the trials in your life are not just some coincidental occurrence of a broken world, but rather something with intentionality buried in them. Let that sit and soak for a second. How are you feeling about that? It's in light of that reality that we can go back and look at the first thing that James says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. In other words, consider it, account of it, categorize it as the perfect fulfillment of joy when you are facing various trials. And so the next question is obvious, right? In what universe, sir? Right? On what planet could trials and hardships, literal persecution to James's audience, could that ever be considered joyful? Let alone joy in its fullness. All joy, he says. As a culture, we talked about joy a lot over the last month and a half. It's a, if the word joy wasn't in the title of your favorite Christmas movie, it was somewhere in the dialogue, Right? Just the truth. We, we, joy is a word that gets thrown around in all kinds of ways. Uh, it gets thrown around a whole lot during the Christmas season. We even address it ourselves in sermon form on Christmas morning. We talked about joy. We said then that joy is seen by a lot of people as a slightly weightier and much more festive synonym for happiness. That's all it is to a lot of folks. But I'm going to go ahead and guess that that's not the way James would define joy. I don't think that's what he's got in view here. No, see, a more biblical definition would be to say that joy is a gladness of satisfaction. A gladness of satisfaction, a contentedness that finds light-hearted rest in a given circumstance. 
And if you're wondering to yourself, how could anyone ever find lighthearted rest in the circumstance of trials? Well, James gives us an answer in verse 3. Look at it again. Four. Time out. He said four. He, he used the word four. So follow me here. James does not look at those staring down the threat of persecution and murder and tell them to simply pretend, you know, that their circumstances aren't really actually that bad. You know, something that, that should make them happy instead. You know, find the good in it, guys. Look for that silver lining. It's there somewhere. Keep looking. James does not tell his audience to ignore the bad and find something good about their situation, something that they can call good at least, nor is he linking arms with you know, the positive thoughts and vibes crowd and teaching them uh, these Jewish Christians scattered and far away from home. He's not teaching them that they should start you know, manifesting some joy so that their circumstances will finally turn around. Come on, 12 tribes of dispersion, change your focus. If you dwell on the good, you'll actualize the good, maximize the good, produce the good. You tell those trials who you are in Christ Jesus and those trials will flee from you. Smile. My smile isn't as pretty as his. No, church, James says that what they are facing right now, they are misunderstanding something of fundamental importance about those trials and what those trials are producing. And if they only saw the bigger picture, if they only saw the bigger picture, those trials would then be naturally measured and categorized in a different way than what they're currently seeing. And church, that is a massive claim. You ever look somebody in the eye that was having the worst day they've ever had and try to tell them they're not seeing correctly? That's a scary moment. You're either of eternal help in that moment or you're, of e- or you're wrecking their life. Either James is a jerk or he's got God-breathed authority behind him here. There's no other way. So what are those trials supposedly producing then? We'll keep reading verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. James so says, well, obviously, obviously you're already aware that this testing of your faith produces steadfastness, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. A verse ago, well, we pointed out uh, the Greek word for trials, uh, the word testing here. It's a different Greek word, but it carries almost the exact same tense. It's the idea of authenticating something. Authenticating something, proving its genuineness. James says, hey, I I know you already know this. Listen, man, I I know you already know this, but this proving, these these trials that are authenticating the genuineness of your faith, it produces something in you that is more valuable than what you might end up losing in the middle of the trial. Steadfastness, he says. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, What's steadfastness, though? I'm not a betting man, but I'm going to go ahead and guess. There's not a single person in this room, myself included, that has used the word steadfastness in a voluntary way in the last three years. Anybody? It's only if you did your James homework and read this out loud. So what is steadfastness? 
It's the ability or quality to endure. The ability or quality to endure. The resoluteness of something. It's the capacity to survive beyond what other things are capable of surviving. James tells some Christians that are intimately familiar with not only the idea of trials, but the persistent presence of trials in their lives. He tells them that what they are facing is not purposeless. It's doing something. God is doing something with them. He is using those trials to create in them a faith that has the ability to endure what mere assent to theological truths can never produce, never create. Staying power. An authenticated genuineness. And just like before, if you're paying attention, there, there are two massive philosophical, theological questions that flow out of that reality. The first one is this. Does that mean that God is morally culpable for the trials in our lives? If God's doing something with them. Does that mean they're his fault? Is he playing games with folks in order to mold them into who he wants them to be? The answer is no. The answer is no. All throughout the Bible, we see example after example after example of God using the sinful actions of others for his own sovereign and righteous purposes. Over and over again, we see that. Uh, We see culpability logic stated explicitly in the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Genesis 50, if you're not familiar with that story. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Culpability logic is is expressed explicitly in that moment. But we also see the logic of culpability most clearly play out in the cross of Christ. Answer the question as fast as you can. Who is responsible for Jesus' death on the cross? And go. The Jewish religious authorities sinned against him in demanding his execution. Judas sinned in betraying him to those authorities. The disciples sinned in deserting him to face arrest and execution alone. Herod sinned when he, he mocked Jesus and claiming to be king. The mob sinned against him when they lustfully shouted crucify him. Pilate sinned when he gave the order. The Roman soldiers sinned when they carried out an execution on an innocent man. In addition to all that, the Bible is crystal clear that it's my sin and yours that is responsible that made his death necessary in the first place. And even though every single one of those other seven things are 100% true, dozens and dozens and dozens of texts from Genesis all the way to Revelation make it explicitly clear in the Bible that it was the Lord's will to crush him. Who's responsible? If by chance you still have the book of Acts at the ready, head back there real quick. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 27. The believers are praying for boldness after Peter and John had been arrested and then questioned by the Jewish authorities and then released again. They gather everybody together to pray. Acts 4.27 tells us what they prayed for. It says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I'll say it again. God used the sinful actions of others to bring about his own sovereign and righteous purposes. The answer is both. But no, God is not morally culpable. 
But there's a second massive philosophical theological question to flow out of God's sovereign hand over our trials. What should we do when we find ourselves in the middle of one? What do we do next? If you, you find yourself in the middle of that day where just things are falling apart around you and you make this discovery that, oh man, yeah, that, that's what's going on here. What, what do we do? Wherever it happens to fall in the range of that bad day, all the way to full-grown persecution, if, if God is using the, that trial to produce in you good and valuable things, how do we respond when we're staring down the barrel of a trial? Can we run in the other direction? Is that allowed? Are we allowed to fight back a little bit? Or are we supposed to just lean into trials and maybe even persecution too because you know, we'd, we'd rather have those good things than that the trial could supposedly bring? What are we supposed to do? Well, the answer to that question is much much more complicated than just yes or no. Much more complicated than yes or no. Uh, if you're not familiar with the field of Christian ethics, trying to think through massive answers to massive questions, um, Christian ethics is never less than pointing at a single verse of the Bible and doing that, but it's all, almost always a lot more than pointing at a single verse in the Bible and doing that thing. There's more nuance there. Uh, Jesus' teaching on the subject is incredibly nuanced in Matthew 10. Um, we're not going to turn there this morning, but if you want to, it's about verse 23, I think it starts. All right, he, tells, uh, he tells his followers, no, it's verse 18 or so. Uh, he tells his followers to expect that they will be persecuted. Like, expect that. Why? Because he's sending them, actively sending them into the dangerous place among the dangerous people. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Like, he, he, tells, he tells his boys, listen, it's coming. It's coming. Don't be surprised when they drag you before courts and flog you. It's coming. But then only a few sentences after that, Jesus says that if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Meaning, if you got the opportunity to leave, then leave. Move on to the next place and try your luck there. The Apostle Paul seems to have also lived out this teaching all throughout the back half of the book of Acts, if you've ever uh, read that before. Uh, there, there, are some places, there are some places that Paul endured incredible suffering for the cause of the gospel. He refused to budge, and he kept preaching the gospel even as he was being attacked. There are also other places where Paul quietly slipped out of town in the middle of the night. There's also, one of my favorite things about Paul, uh, there are also times when he bowed up at his opponents, tried to stare them down, and all his really smart, cooler-headed friends dragged him out of there. I love that about Paul. See, rather than saying that Christians ought to flee trials or face them down, both Jesus and Paul seem to redirect our outlook on the trials in our lives towards what they can be leveraged for, for something that we find more valuable. It's not that the trial is not a big deal. And maybe the call is to go. Is there something you want more that you can get out of this? And that's precisely what James does here in verse 4. Look at it again. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, sometimes, sometimes there is an argument for leaning in to the hard moment. 
Not all the time, but sometimes there's an argument for leaning into the hard moment. Not because we're gluttons for punishment, not because we have some form of spiritual masochism, but because that we trust that our God is good and that he will carry us through to the other side of that trial. But also that he's doing something in us and we can also trust that he will actually, we will actually come out better on the other side of that trial. Not just survive, maybe even thrive. It ends up being a willing investment in eternal promises. James says that, that authenticated, genuine faith, it produces steadfastness. But listen, at the same time, a prolonged exposure to steadfastness, it has some positive effects as well. It changes you too. And so he says, let it have its full effect on you. Let it continue to grow in you in things. Why? Because in doing so, God will use it to bring you to a depth of spiritual maturity and patience and Christ-likeness that none of the happier moments in your life have the ability to produce. They can't pull that off. No one, absolutely no one is dumb enough to pretend that trials don't actually matter. So, you know, put on a fake smile and get busy. Take the next step. That's not what Paul's saying, but, or not what James is saying. But James is convinced that, that trials in the lives of God's people produces a sweeter fruit than life without them. And maybe the fruit is worth it. At least sometimes. Maybe the fruit is worth it. While we ought not prefer trials, getting a real taste of the fruit may just change your mind. But listen, that logic... It makes absolutely zero sense if you've never been given an appetite to love those things. Not a bit. If you don't have an appetite for those eternal things, this sounds like absolute hogwash to you. I get that. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, I'd love to help you change that. I'd love to help you change that. I get it. The idea of leaning into hard things sounds antithetical to everything that you believe about how the world works. But here's a very real question that you need to answer if you're, if you're being honest about your heart. How are you doing in all of your attempts to run the other way? Is that working either? Is that actually something that you can pull off? Have you discovered yet that the world is broken every direction you turn yet? No matter which way you try to run, no matter how much money you throw at it or effort you throw at it or creativity you throw at it or distractions you throw at it, you cannot avoid the problems forever. Have you figured that out about out the world yet? The Bible teaches that the brokenness of this world, it has a cause. Our sin. That because of our sin, not only have we jacked up this place, but we have also been separated relationally from God and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. But don't mishear me. The Bible does not, I repeat, it does not teach that trials and hardships in this world are that punishment for sin. Not even a little bit. That's paganism. That's the opposite worldview. No, it teaches that trials are graces of God meant to cause us to long for him and cling to him instead of anything else that might, we might hope to save us. To cause us to, to long for him to come to our rescue. Listen, if you've reached the point where you feel and understand that longing, you, you can actually taste it. Well, listen, I've got good news for you because God is already working on a fix for it. He's halfway through his plan, actually. 
God sent his son Jesus. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross as an innocent substitute to make sufficient payment for your sin, full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. Listen, the cosmic fix to the brokenness of our hearts and the sin brokenness of this world, it begins with God reconciling us to himself. And it will one day be fully completed when Jesus steps back onto the scene for the second time and makes all things new. So if you're here this morning and you would like to take that step of placing your trust, placing your faith in the one who has a cosmic fix, man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus this morning. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. Let's talk if you want to talk. I'll be down front. But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond? The same way we always respond to God's word, by repenting of sin and by leaning into to, to what God reveals about himself in the text. And this week, I think our response probably needs to take the shape of critically assessing our knee-jerk first turn whenever trials and hardships arise in our life. What's the thing you run to? Is it the thing that's going to produce the sweetest fruit? Or is it another distraction? What do we immediately run to whenever that hard or scary thing happens? It might, it might reveal which fruit we have a greater appetite for, for. Maybe our response this week can be to ask God to continue giving us a taste for something sweeter. Something infinitely better and eternal. I'm here if you want to talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way by formally joining our church family or maybe by uh, finally being obedient to Jesus in baptism or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some call he's placed on your life to take the gospel far away from here. I don't know, but I want to be helpful to you. We're gonna, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond together to God's word. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for hard words this morning. My knee-jerk reaction is usually to try to fix my own problems or explain them away or blame someone other than myself a lot of times. But whatever their source, help me to see that you are sovereign over them. And that by leaning into you, well, it's a better thing than escaping anything else. Father, I want a fruit that is infinitely sweet. Steadfastness. Sounds like a good thing. Give me more. And yeah, I know the implications of asking you to give me more steadfastness. I think you're worth it. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call people into your kingdom today? Introduce them to yourself. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.